WDBM East Lansing. This is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello again, this is Burl Schwartz talking. Later in the show, we'll discuss healthcare politics with the Director of Protect Our Care, Michigan. First up, though, is our weekly conversation with MSU political scientist Matt Grossman about the shape of the 2020 presidential race on the eve of the Democratic National Convention. Matt, I think we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, Normally I ask you what's on your mind, but I'm going to ask you to start with the rollout of uh, Joe Biden's pick for vice president. Well, I think even though Kamala Harris was the most uh, expected um, for uh, months by uh, prediction markets and political observers, that uh, it still came as a uh, a shot of energy to the campaign, additional press coverage, um, and uh, generated a lot of interest and a lot of donations. Uh, so it seems to have gone uh, pretty well as uh, as these things go. Um, as we talked about before, uh, the research doesn't support sort of huge uh, effects and lasting effects of the vice presidential nominee, uh, but it is still a new experiment that we're running, especially on whether this matters to, to motivate uh, African-American and Asian-American turnout. Well, and that leads into the next question. So what does uh, her, what does she do for her? Uh, he was going to win California, so it doesn't seem like it's a strong argument for votes in that state. Right. And we don't actually show, we don't actually find uh, much evidence of home state effects of vice presidential candidates or home region effects. Uh, and the last two uh, women uh, nominees, uh, Sarah Palin and Geraldine Ferraro, did not result in any increased uh, mobilization or uh, persuasion of uh, women. So the evidence that we have is not um, that strong for for huge effects. Um, the the big case that that does show effects is actually in the negative. It's the Sarah Palin nomination, which uh, made people more concerned about John McCain's uh, age. Um, so I wouldn't expect you know major effects, um, but we're going into the convention uh, season, and this is. Uh, you know, the pretty much the biggest actual news of that uh, part of the campaign. And so uh, it does give Biden sort of an opportunity to reintroduce himself and uh, his his message alongside Kamala Harris. Now, I get it that normally uh, who's on the ticket is more a matter of uh, 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 how this person might hurt somebody versus help somebody. But uh, is this year different? And is there perhaps some evidence from uh, 2016 when uh, Hillary Clinton picked uh, someone not well known and not uh, particularly charismatic? Well, there's uh, there's not much evidence uh, that um, that Kane helped um, or hurt that much um, last time. Um, I think it is important as sort of an indicator of where the party in uh, stands at the moment. Um, Kamala Harris uh, is kind of the same uh, sort of uh, direction uh, that we would expect from Biden. That is, she she holds quite liberal policy positions, but she doesn't position herself and is not seen as uh, coming uh, overwhelmingly from the left. Um, so this really is kind of an extension of the Obama era. Obviously, we have Obama's vice president, uh, and we also have uh, someone who seeks kind of the same uh, electoral coalition 
that Obama had um, and has a chance to, to rebuild it. So I see it as sort of a indicator of where the Democratic Party uh, is, um, but, but not a necessarily a big vote mover. But it's also clear that Biden uh, doesn't need uh, a big uh, shakeup at this point in the campaign. Uh, do you see any negatives uh, in uh, his choice of her? Uh, I don't think uh, there'll be huge uh, negative electoral uh, effects. I do think uh, that you know we'll still we still have the question about the how governance is going to look. Um, it's it was clear from the vetting that <clears throat> Biden was a little bit concerned that he didn't have the same kind of governing uh, partner. Um, uh, that that he said he served uh, for Obama, so it's not clear that anything changed um, uh, from this pick for that. Uh, it, we also, you know, have to look down the line to say, you know, Biden has said he may not run again in 2024. To what extent is Harris going to be the odds-on favorite if he doesn't, um, or even if he does, uh, you know, then be the next uh, likely Democratic nominee. So there could be negatives down the line um, for governance or for next elections, but for now, I don't see many. All right. We're talking to Matt Grossman, a political scientist from Michigan State University here on 89FM, The Impact. Matt, I uh, read an op-ed piece uh, the other day on uh, uh, well, in, in which it described our governor as the, quote, dauntless woman from Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, Michigan State 93, who thinks like a general, looks like a 40s film star, and talks like she's ice fishing for musty. Uh, and uh, I, I thought it was, a, first of all, a wonderful description, but how do you think she uh, acquitted herself uh, uh, in this uh, vice presidential consideration? Well, I think uh, she came out looking pretty good. Um, she was at least in the top 11, if not the top uh, four or so, um, coming down the, the stretch. And uh, she, by at least news accounts, um, recommended and was, was happy to see uh, an African-American woman uh, selected instead. Uh, and she's going to get a spot at the convention on Monday. Um, so she still has a good opportunity uh, to take advantage of the increased national uh, profile uh, uh, from this. And of course, Michigan will still be on the national agenda. So uh, she'll have uh, that uh, opportunity to, to shine in the, in the fall as well. Um, but of course we're two years from the, <laughs> from the gubernatorial election and um, whoever wins the presidency is likely to face more trouble in the next in the following midterm elections. So things could look different by then. Uh, the, reason, the, the point of this op-ed article was uh, the, the writer sees a transition uh, from uh, our political leaders uh, coming largely from elite uh, private school educations uh, to perhaps uh, uh, the public school educations because Biden is a, a product of the University of Delaware and Ka Kamala Harris has her law degree from a public institution in California. That presents kind of an interesting sidebar, so to speak, to uh, politics in America. Uh, there is a long history of elitists, uh, at least people with elite educations running the country. Do you see any real transition here? 
Well, I, uh, <laughs> it is uh, something to mark that we'll not have people from Harvard and Yale on the on the ticket. Uh, but I think it's a bit of a stretch uh, to not consider uh, these candidates part of the uh, elite. Kamala Harris's uh, parents both have PhDs. Her uh, dad was a professor at Stanford. So um, I wouldn't say that it. Uh, <laughs> she comes completely out of a different uh, uh, class or educational uh, background. Um, and Biden, of course, will be our most experienced president if he's elected in terms of legislative experience, having spent uh, 36 years of the Senate plus uh, time as vice president. So uh, this is still, um, in some ways, a continuation, although it is important to, to mark that break from the, from the very high uh, Harvard and, and Yale uh, presidential, vice presidential nominees. Um, the uh, president has certainly been active on television using uh, these uh, coronavirus briefings as uh, a stump for his uh, re-election. Uh, some people think he is just falling apart, and I, much was made on a couple of uh, news programs yesterday about the uh, Huffington Post reporter Ask, uh, asking him to comment on uh, uh, lying to the American people so much for the last three and a half years and whether he has any regrets. And he certainly didn't answer the question. He, uh, but are you seeing uh, signs that uh, we've got a president in some kind of trouble here beyond the obvious the political trouble he might be in? Well, his demeanor hasn't really changed all that much um, uh, during his presidency. And in fact, I think those people who uh, looked at the campaign and said, look what you're going to get in office, uh, were, were coming out more correct than, than people who said there'd be a big change um, once, once he had the responsibilities of office. So I think it's been pretty uh, consistent. His low approval rating has also been uh, fairly uh, consistent. So voters... Uh, impressions of him um, aren't changing uh, that much. Um, when you look at what people say they, they like and dislike, um, similarly, uh, you know, people uh, recognize that he doesn't tell the, the truth. Um, there's just some people who, who like the Democrats less, <laughs> less than that. Um, so I don't see huge uh, changes, but I think the big thing this time is that uh, so far they really haven't landed any blows on Joe Biden the way that they have uh, Clinton. So voters who dislike both candidates are overwhelmingly supporting Biden this time, and they supported Trump in the end last time. Uh, the New York Times had an intriguing article uh, Friday in which it reported that uh, some Washington insiders have begun to wonder if the potential influence of a movement called QAnon is being underestimated. What can you tell us about QAnon? Well, this is a conspiracy theory um, that started on online uh, message boards that has some very odd uh, views and um, I guess came onto public consciousness in um, inspiring the, the shooter at a, a pizza restaurant um, in D.C. So um, not a great corner of the Internet. And uh, we just had a, a member of Congress uh, likely uh, elected because of the Republican Lena of the district um, in Georgia, who's a supporter 
at least has been in the past of this conspiracy theory. So um, there are some signs that it's kind of uh, coming into more coming into the mainstream, but but polling on it has been overwhelmingly negative um, and really hasn't actually been that partisan. Um, so it's not clear that that most voters know much about this or that it has a big uh, influence. Um, but I think it's a sign um, that if we do see an incoming Biden administration, you're going to see a pretty immediate uh, reaction. And that reaction is going to be going to have some very nutty elements uh, that, you know, go back all the way on the right to the Birch Society. Um, and I do think that uh, it's a sign that that you will see some conspiratorial thinking right away uh, from an incoming Biden administration. Finally, what are your thoughts as we uh, as we're on the eve uh, today of the Democratic National Convention? It's got to be one like no other. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, it will be in terms of format, of course, quite different, um, and probably that will reduce. Uh, uh, the number of people watching and so the opportunity to, to potentially move votes. Um, uh, but in, in format, um, in, in terms of who's speaking and what they'll be speaking about, I don't think um, you're going to see a whole lot of changes. The schedule so far looks uh, uh, pretty similar and, um, and actually kind of a lot of uh, continuity. Um, both Michelle and Barack Obama are speaking. Uh, both Hillary and Bill Clinton are speaking. So it really is still the, the Democratic Party that's uh, evolving um, slowly uh, that you're going to see on display uh, next uh, next week. I think for me, um, part of the question has been what is going to be the agenda? Um, this uh, campaign has not been very much about <laughs> agendas. Trump basically has articulated no major second term agenda. Um, Biden has focused on opposition to uh, Trump on the economy and COVID. And so it's not clear what the first major legislative priority will be other than still continuing to clean up uh, the, the debate over the current stimulus. Um, so I'll be looking to see if there really is a focus. Does climate change come to the fore? Does uh, a major healthcare uh, uh, reinvention look uh, likely? Or is it just kind of a continued attack on Trump uh, and a uh, and a, a laundry list of, of policies. Well, I look forward to talking to you about the convention uh, when we talk again next week. Matt Grossman from Michigan State University, thanks so much for being on City Pulse. Thank you. And you're listening to City Pulse on 88.9 WDBMFM, the impact at Michigan State University. I'm Burl Schwartz. The Affordable Care Act continues as a political football in the run-up to the 2020 elections. My next guest is trying to influence that discussion. She's a former state legislator who heads the advocacy communications firm Byram and Fisk, Diane Byram. Diane, welcome back to the show, albeit probably at least a decade since the last time we talked. Oh, wow. It doesn't seem like it should be that long, Burl. No, it sure doesn't. And uh, uh, I will say on behalf of both of us, we both look great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, at least we're above the ground, right? <laughs> yeah, very much. Uh, Diane, uh, you are, uh, you just wrote an op-ed piece in the current issue of City Pulse uh, about uh, uh, the future of the ACA and uh, particularly taking on uh, John James, the Republican candidate opposing uh, uh, Gary Peters uh, in, uh, for uh, the Senate in uh, uh, in November. Um, 
I'm wondering, uh, first of all, whom are you, uh, whom is Byram and Fisk representing on this issue? Well, you know, I've had a long history of being involved in health care, um, dates way back to my early days in the state legislature. So I serve as the state director for Protect Our Care Michigan. We are a 501c4 organization, and there's directors across the United States and the various states. So I really come at this not only as a citizen who cares deeply about health care, but also in my role as state director for Protect Our Care Michigan. And who funds Protect Our Care Michigan? Well, it is a, a 501c4, so it has donors from across the nation. Mm -hmm. I can't identify exactly who those donors are, but it, it, I operate primarily in the nonprofit space, but I believe the stakes are so high in this election that I wanna make sure voters understand exactly what's going on with decisions about their healthcare that are going to be impacted significantly by this upcoming November election. Uh, and how, how do you feel it will be impacted? Uh, the Republicans have certainly done damage to the ACA, but they haven't done away with it. What do you, what, what do you fear? Well, what I fear is an outright repeal of America's health system, and that's the Affordable Care Act. Now, President Trump made no bones about wanting to completely um, dismantle the Affordable Care Act. He campaigned on that four years ago, and there were a series of votes in the United States Congress to do exactly that. And when that failed, you remember the famous thumbs down vote of Senator John McCain, that happened um, several years ago, but that basically said, we're not going to be successful in repealing through Congress, then President Trump and his administration went to the courts. There was the Texas versus Azar or United States, and that case made its way up to the United States Supreme Court, which is where it sits today. The Supreme Court has indicated they will start to hear oral arguments right after the election. We have legal briefs that have been filed and responses to those briefs have been filed, and it's really broken down on partisan lines, unfortunately. Uh, I never believed healthcare was a partisan issue. I never approached it as a partisan issue when I was in the legislature. But today, the reality is that line is very stark between where Democrats and Republicans stand on the Affordable Care Act. So that's the context by which I approach this discussion in this particular election cycle. Everything is on the line with healthcare in this election. Uh, and of course, the Supreme Court has uh, upheld the Affordable Care Act, and John Roberts in particular uh, gets credit for that. Uh, is, there, um, is there a grave danger, do you think, uh, with this uh, next uh, decision? Well, there's a significant danger challenging the Affordable Care on its constitutionality basis. And that comes out of an action by Congress where they removed the requirement that you, uh, the mandate for individual insurance. When that happened, it changed the dynamic and it gave a new argument to argue in front of the courts. And so that's exactly what's on the line is an outright repeal to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and at an absolute minimum, what it'll do is it'll 
put absolute chaos into our healthcare system and shatter coverage and protections for tens of millions of Americans. And so there is a lot at stake. It is a grave danger. And what we have seen is this is a lawsuit brought forward by the Trump administration. And we have Democratic attorneys generals, attorneys general, opposing the lawsuit. We have Republican attorneys general um, supporting the lawsuit across the nation. So in Michigan, we have a Democratic attorney general, we have a Democratic governor, both have filed in, in opposition to this lawsuit. But in other states that have Republican control of their attorney general's office, as well as the governor's office, have done just the opposite. They filed briefs in support of the president's the President Trump's administration's position. Uh, the Republicans contend that this just is not the American way to move toward what they would call socialized medicine. Uh, but at the same time, I think you have a progressive wing of the Democratic Party that says, no, this, is, uh, this doesn't go far enough. Uh, is, uh, given what we've seen in the last, uh, since March, uh, with uh, the biggest health crisis imaginable that our country has faced, uh, it, it, are we seeing that the ACA is good and is meeting needs, or are we seeing that, uh, uh, that it is uh, falling short? Well, First of all, the Affordable Care Act, the ACA as we call it for short, is America's health system. It has been in place for a decade. So it is how healthcare is funded and delivered in America. It is a market-based system, so we're not talking socialized medicine at its heart. But what the Affordable Care Act has done is it has shored up our hospital infrastructure, which is why the, both the Michigan Hospital Association and the American Hospital Association are on board in support of the Affordable Care Act in opposition to this lawsuit that's now in front of the Supreme Court. That doesn't mean that we can't strengthen and amend the Affordable Care Act, but to rip it up and start over with no plan is absolutely unacceptable and will throw chaos into how people receive health care and put people's lives at risk. So that's the background. So it is a market-driven system. And what we know from our experience in Michigan, that we have 720,000 Michigan citizens that have access to health care through the Healthy Michigan program, which again is through an insurance ex exchange, private insurance exchange. It is an expansion of Medicaid as we know it, but it allows working people whose employers do not provide them with health care, the ability to purchase health care at an affordable price for their families. And there are choices on that exchange. So that's significant. And then if you remember back to pre-Affordable Care Act days, we had people with pre-existing conditions that either were outright denied coverage coverage was too expensive for them to be able to afford because of the surcharges, or there were lifetime limits or annual caps put on the amount that the insurance would cover for people with pre-existing conditions, people with diabetes, people with kidney disease, people with heart and lung issues. So 
we don't want to go back to those days where people that desperately needed coverage and access to health care were not able to, to receive it. So those are the protections that we have with the Affordable Care Act and significant protections for senior citizens. Seniors feel like, well, they have Medicare, so how does the Affordable Care Act really impact them? Well, it does in very significant ways. First of all, it defines what essential services are, which means now cancer screenings and immunizations are essential services, so seniors don't have to pay out of pocket for those as they did previously. That donut hole that many seniors got caught in the middle of, that increase the, the amount they had to pay for prescription drugs has been eliminated. And you can't have an age tax on supplemental insurance, which costs senior citizens thousands of dollars on an annual basis. So all of those enhancements are because of the Affordable Care Act that impacts seniors and their ability and the cost of their health care. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, uh, whether uh, it's fair to say that John, John James uh, doesn't have a health care plan, as I think you did in the op-ed, because right. uh, I was uh, greeted this morning by an email from uh, the John James campaign saying, do you check accuracy before you print these op-ed pieces? And uh, th they said, uh, you know, he is always said repeal and replace. Uh, what do you think about that? What's his plan is what I think about that. You cannot repeal the Affordable Care Act, America's health care system for a decade without a well thought out plan of how it's going to be replaced. You can't say I will support people with pre-existing conditions without a plan that is going to make sure that people with pre-existing conditions get access to coverage. I remember what it was like in the early 2000s, in the early 1990s, when people with pre-existing conditions could not get access to affordable quality healthcare. We don't wanna go back to those days that we let pure the market purely drive who gets coverage, who doesn't get coverage, at what price do they get coverage, and reinstitute caps on that coverage, lifetime caps or annual caps. I mean, that's the way it was prior to the Affordable Care Act. And it just left way too many people without coverage. And now you fast forward to 2020 with a global pandemic with the coronavirus. And we see in crystal clear terms what it means when people don't have access to healthcare coverage. And that impacts the entire population with infection rates. So we need to do better. We need to look at the Affordable Care Act as our basis. And let's have a dialogue on how can we expand coverage? How can we improve coverage? But let's not rip it up with no plan and think that people can just on their own find affordable coverage that gives them access to quality care. Uh, finally, uh, the uh, spokesperson from the John James campaign uh, said, he's uh, referring to James, he's also noted in the Detroit News saying he'll disagree with Trump when it's wrong for Michigan. He's also suggested publicly, also publicly suggested additional ways to improve our health care. Uh, the bipartisan remark was the beginning of a statement about needing to focus on nonpartisan solutions. Uh, your reaction? 
Well, a couple of things. First of all, I would like to see John James absolutely denounce Donald Trump, President Trump, and say that he's wrong on this lawsuit in front of the Supreme um, Court. So where does he stand on the Trump administration's lawsuit in front of the Supreme Court? Because you can't be for access to affordable coverage for Americans if you're willing to let the, the lawsuit continue and outright repeal the Affordable Care Act with no replacement in place. So that's one question I would have for him. And, and the second question is, I, I'm all for bipartisan support in coming together for solutions on health care. Uh, and I think, frankly, United States Senator Gary Peters has the best track record on that. And it, I would also point that the United States Chamber of Commerce just awarded Senator Peters for his bipartisanship in his work in the United States Senate. So when I take a look at what's going on with healthcare and how the partisan lines are so clear on this issue, and I have a candidate with an unproven track record who won't stand up and say exactly how he's going to disagree with the president, we could start with this lawsuit, then I think as someone who cares deeply about healthcare, I wanna work with the individual who has the pro proven track record that has stood up in support of the Affordable Care Act and has a history of working bipartisanly across the aisle on a whole host of issues. So in, in my mind, I think it's pretty clear on who's going to do the best job for Michigan citizens when it comes to healthcare and protecting people's access to affordable quality healthcare. Diane Byram, State Director of Protect Our Care Michigan. It's great to see you again, and thanks so much for being on City Pulse. Well, Burl, I very much appreciate it, and it's good to connect with you again. That's our show for this week. We normally go out with a stroll down Michigan's musical memory lane with Rich Tupaca, but I'm afraid I hogged all the time this week, so Rich will join us next week when we return with a new show. Till then, for City Pulse, I'm Burl Schwartz. Thanks for listening.